Welcome back. You are listening to the second part of the series on toxicology here at Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. I guess we're going to move on now to our second paper. You guys may have noticed a second voice coming in there. That was Dr. Tim Selvaraj. He's one of our other ED trainees. And he's going to be presenting a paper that was actually quite close to home, I think is the best way to put it. It's actually been published out of our local health district. And it was published by none other than our very own Dr. Mark Salter, who's a consultant here at Westmead, also one of our toxicology consultants within the sort of area. Pramod, Kit and Naren have also contributed to this paper, which I think is going to hopefully drive some good discussion here. So I'll hand it over to you, Tim. Yeah, definitely a paper that is something a bit close to home. Based out of Western Sydney Local Health District, it's a retrospective cohort study titled The Prevalence of Pregnancy and Drug Overdose Presenting to a Tertiary Toxicology Service by Dr. Salter Chandru Rowe Smith and Gunja. It's published in 2022 on an open access uh, forum called DubPress. It essentially examines a population of females aged 14 to 50 who presented to Western Sydney local health district hospitals and who required a toxicology admission or some advice. The intervention that was assessed was whether or not there was beta-HTG testing. And I guess probably not so much looking at a control, but if you had to define one, it would probably be comparing positive and negative HCGs and whether or not the blood tests were performed in these populations. And so the outcomes assessed primarily was the rate of pregnancy and unexpected pregnancy in these patients, as well as examines the departmental compliance with blood HCG testing, the rate of polypharmacy ingestion and what the exposure or drug classes associated with poisoning in pregnancy were. The paper's purpose was to establish the rate of pregnancy and the unexpected pregnancy in these patients with toxicology-related presentations. It was also served as an audit of the adherence to the policy directives that have been around for about 25 years in the local health district for blood HCG testing in patients with suspected poisoning. The study assumes that there is a proportion of patients requiring specialist toxicology care that are pregnant and that a proportion of these patients will also be unexpectedly pregnant. So they're not known to have a positive beta HCG result or not known to be pregnant from the community. This is an important study that seeks to monitor the information regarding managing pregnant patients with toxicology-related presentations to EDs specifically and sort of is based around the fact that there are quite a few challenges in managing pregnant people in any ED population. So in toxicology specifically, there's a potential for harm to both mother and fetus from both the toxin and the antidotes prescribed. There's also in some papers documented increased risk of miscarriage, fetal demise or teratogenic complications. Poisonings account for a large number of ED presentations already and unexpected pregnancy is already found in 0.2 to 6.3% of patients who require pregnancy testing. So people will present with traumas, abdominal pains or require just you know simple things like a chest x-ray. So the paper looks at two large studies for its background information. So there's a 2010 annual report of the American Association of Poison Control Centers National Poison Data System. So probably a much more larger scale look at all toxicological presentations across the US. That was published in 2011 and based on that and a study from 1984 published in the Obstetrics and Gynecology Journal that there's a 0.07 to 0.6% of known pregnancy and poison patients. However, there is not as much evidence to support evidence-based practice 
for the management of people with unexpected pregnancies and definitely nothing that sort of correlates to the Australian demographic. The paper obviously serves a secondary function of an audit as well that assesses the adherence to a 25-year-old policy in Western Sydney local health district that directs that blood HCG testing is essentially mandatory for all patients with suspected poisoning who are of a childbearing age, which was in this paper deemed to be between the ages of 14 to 50. Just going through the method and design of the paper, there's it's a retrospective cohort study. It assessed all females aged 14 to 50 who were referred to the toxicology service between January 2013 and November 2019. Their study did a good thing, which was it also assessed for whether pregnancies were detected in the ages of 10 to 14 and 50 to 60, which there weren't any. There were only referrals from ED and only drug-related presentations, so envenomations and other toxins were excluded from the study as well. Patients were identified from the services database by two independent researchers and collected data from the patient's electronic medical records to establish demographic data, what the blood HCG levels were, and whether or not there was any prior knowledge of the pregnancy status. And it also sought to compare whether or not it was a directional self-poisoning or a single agent or polypharmaceutical overdose and what the intoxicants were. The paper examined a total of 6,596 patients, of which approximately half, so 3,344 were female. 111 of these were excluded due to inadequate documentation. A lot of these, about 750, were out of the age range. And so the remaining 2,438 patients were analysed. 17 of these had no blood tests at all. 2,421 did. And approximately one-third of these did not have a blood HCG recorded. The data was analysed with simple descriptive statistics, primarily as an audit-slash-retrospective cohort study, which was appropriate analysis for that data. The results showed that out of the total 6,595 patients, half of which were female, 2,438 were eligible to be included in the study. Of these, 72.6% were as a result of deliberate self-poisoning, 15% were in association with recreational drug use, and 4.5% were associated with accidental ingestion of a toxin. The majority of these were single drug exposures, uh, which accounted for 58.9% of the total presentations, and 41.4% were involved with the polypharmaceutical agent um, ingestion. The most common drug consumed across all categories here was paracetamol, and out of the 39 pregnancies identified from the 2,438 people, only 0.78% total had an unexpected pregnancy whereas only a slightly more increased portion of 0.82% were in known pregnancy. So there's 19 patients assigned to the unexpected pregnancy arm, 20 patients assigned to the expected or known pregnancy. So it was a very similar amount of people presenting here. So unexpected pregnancy, people had a similar proportion of information and data collected from them compared to people who were not pregnant. So they had a similar proportion of deliberate self-poisoning, which was higher than that of accidental or recreational. There was also a lot more single drug exposure to polypharmacy. So it was more commonly like antipsychotics that were used. For the expected pregnancies, they were more likely to have polypharmacy drug exposure compared to the unexpected pregnancies. And most commonly was paracetamol. But again, deliberate self-poisoning was the main mechanism of ingestion. Again, out of all of these, single agent was still the most common and paracetamol was still the most common, though the proportions 
may have shifted between the two, uh, the unexpected and the expected slash known pregnancies. All of these outcomes were assessed to a, a confidence interval of 95% to yield these results. Out of the strengths and weaknesses of the paper, I think the paper sets out to achieve a clear goal. It doesn't seek to extrapolate information that it can't. It seeks to just essentially see whether or not the testing occurred and what the demographics of the pregnant patients were. So it had clear inclusion and exclusion criteria. It had a very clear set patient database and it had very clear outcomes. The paper itself was published on a, an open access peer-reviewed journal, so the Dovepref forums, and it had a single reviewer. So I think that the impact of the paper was probably not as significant as some of the other papers discussed today. But I think it sort of demonstrates that there's probably a clear sort of role for further papers and perhaps expanding this beyond the Western Sydney Local Health District itself. Perhaps we could look into a statewide or Australia-wide sort of paper, which might mirror that 2011 paper from the US from which a lot of background information for this paper was inferred, which would sort of you know, represent a much more concise database and much more strong evidence. But again, the paper doesn't seek to do that. It also seeks to sort of audit whether or not we actually comply with the policies that are directed for suspected poisonings. The paper showed that we do have a pretty good compliance with at least doing blood tests in patients. So female patients who present with a suspected poisoning, so 99.3% of them did have a blood test of some form. And out of these, two-thirds of these people did have a serum beta-HCG performed on them. So one-third of patients potentially could have been an unexpected pregnancy that was missed and potentially could have had a adverse outcome associated with that. I think the paper, it sought out to achieve a simple goal, and I think it did that. It doesn't seek to assess any outcomes that would be outside of the realm of what could be accomplished with the paper. And I think for that reason, it's overall a good paper that sort of establishes a need for further research, I would say. I would be interested in seeing if our Western Sydney team could perhaps collaborate with some other local health districts to produce a paper of a larger statistical impact. What was the reason this was picked as a topic for your research? I think Mark was very interested in this topic and it was something that I've been meaning to also look into. I'm not sure that this is standard practice across Australia or even New South Wales and certainly not across the world that everyone gets a beta HCG. It's something that we had historically been doing and so it was a good opportunity to look at something that perhaps was anomalous practice and see why we're doing it. Is it something worth doing? It also brought out that perhaps that we are needing to refine what we do. That was a good way to sort of be a bit introspective to see, you know, look back at practice and see what we should be doing. And although it appears to be a very low value test, I think picking up pregnancy in this cohort of patients is important from a psychosocial perspective, less so from a toxicological or teratogenicity perspective because we don't often have drugs that cause major teratogenicity in that first trimester that were undetected pregnancies. But it's more that, you know, you've got patients that are at risk, that are in psychological stress. And it's interesting that a significant number of these unexpected pregnancies were in patients that took antipsychotic and antidepressants. So if you look at figure two, if you look at the unexpected pregnancy, which is the yellow bar, 
all the others kind of follow the same pattern of all patients, except for two which do not follow that, and that is antipsychotics and antidepressants. And that's very interesting that this group of patients are where you're picking up an unexpectedly high rate. But what I find that often is that when patients come in with any kind of overdose, people are just doing beta HCGs randomly, like doing paracetamol levels and other tests. Um, but really, we need to focus on patients who are female of childbearing age who take a deliberate poisoning episode. Sometimes it's easier just to standardise practice in ED, and I think there's a real role for kind of standardised practice, particularly in this kind of circumstance. But I do think we have to take into account the kind of health economics argument of what we do as well. Consider carefully, you know, whether the tests that we're doing are necessarily going to change management or appropriate in every population of people. And I think that's, you know, for me was certainly part of the drive for being involved in this. I think we, in a lot of areas of emergency medicine have kind of forgotten about health economics and I think our system will suffer if we don't think really seriously about what we're doing and why. From an antidote perspective does being pregnant change dose requirements, duration of treatment, that kind of thing? By and large no. There's no real change in management from a tox perspective. I'll pick up on two things that Kit mentioned. One is the health economic side of it is doing things when they're really needed. So one of the things that it mentions is perhaps we should really switch to a cheaper test if urine tests are that much cheaper, that we should switch to that as a screening test rather than blood. And the other point is the psychosocial things. I mean, a part of, you know, you've got a patient that comes in in a stressful situation to hospital and we don't know whether pregnancy was a part of that stress or not and neither does the patient, particularly if Either they don't tell you or they don't even know. And part of that counselling that forms toxicological and psychological management of this patient, you know, this it would be important for that patient to leave hospital knowing whether they were pregnant or not. So that could be a factor in deciding whether to make this a routine test or not. In addition to the comments made by Naren and Kit, just for some context, I just pulled up the actual data for the study here. So we had a total number of pregnancies, 35, 15 of them were known, 20 of them were unknown at the time of testing. Out of those, 20, 15 were deliberate self-poisonings. Reviewing each of the self-poisonings, three of them were paracetamol, which was the highest, and then venlafaxine, escitalopram, and quetiapine were all two patients each, and then everything else was taken by single individuals. Looking at then, because I did this just as a side thing, because Mark showed me the data and I was just intrigued because I had similar questions, I guess, around concerns about teratogenicity, even though, I mean, realistically, the risk would still be quite low, given that it's a single ingestion. And as Naren mentioned, would probably be within the early parts of the pregnancy. But out of all of the agents, really only two of them are category Ds that were taken. One patient took some colchicine and one patient took some lithium. Colchicine doesn't really have terribly much in the first trimester, although it can cause some MSK growth defects, but primarily later on. And then lithium does have significant increased risk of birth defects in the first trimester, as well as newborn lithium toxicity, which is apparently a syndrome that I wasn't fully aware of until I had a read about it. And then the remainder of stuff's all just category C stuff with not significant evidence to demonstrate clear link to adverse outcomes, but 
but you know some case reports of unusual drug reactions and relationships with fetal hypoxia and things like that but nothing that was very clear cut in the literature so realistically you've got out of all of patients who are not known to be pregnant and took deliberate self-poisonings of which there were 15 you only really had two agents that were category d um you had quite a few category c agents but looking further into neonatal consequences a lot of them occurred primarily in the third trimester and so i don't really know how much bang for your buck you're getting in terms of a just purely toxicological sort of management obviously we're not taking into account the psychosocial benefits of understanding this as part of a whole of patient evaluation and as naren said you know there might be a more cost efficient testing process and i think the answer is not really to not test patients who might potentially be pregnant in the context of a deliberate self poisoning but rather whether there's a better way to formulate that test and that might be you know a urine bdcg although i have to admit i don't know if, if that was really as part of the scope of the study and mind you i don't know the cost on the system for bdhcg urine pregnancy testing and how that would compare and as i said that particular cost comparison wasn't really part of the scope of the study and what was the sort of experience in publishing a lot of people would just have used some of this data as for like as part of an internal audit but um obviously you guys have gone like a little bit of the extra mile to sort of you know seek a publication and go through that process that would it process, be good yeah. to get mark's perspective on this too look i think yes it is a bit of an internal audit i think we decided to push for publication mainly because there was so little out there about this topic and to get it out there is something for others to think about and look at their own services and look at their own data as a bit of a thinking challenge i mean we have published internal data before like this but this was quite out of left field because it's not your standard straight out tox topic i think the reason to sort of go that extra mile was just because there was so little out there on this topic not just in tox but in general if you look at general ed literature there isn't a lot out there about unexpected pregnancy in hospital i think that makes it an interesting thing to look at i mean i must say i've not seen many unexpected pregnancies so i'm just wondering what your approach to these patients are like how do you break the news to them what do you actually do to support them if you find somebody who's got an unexplained pregnancy particularly in a tox situation Oh, I've had plenty of disastrous encounters. Um, <laughs> so my lessons learned, just make sure everyone's out of the room. Just like don't assume that everyone knows what's happening because I've made that mistake before by accidentally telling people's partners who were just in the room. Um so oh, that was perhaps. highly awkward. And also the assumption that it's not always good news, you know, you just break the information with no congratulations. It also gets awkward when she bursts into tears and you're sort of seeing they're going I thought this was supposed to be a positive patient interaction. <laughs> These are all from lived clinical experiences. Just from a general break making news point of view it's worthwhile you know just doing your usual sort of due diligence to make sure that you've established patient privacy you've created a safe space and you're delivering the information in a, as objective a manner as possible and then obviously the next thing that people immediately want to know is the health implications and so you need to be, be prepared to answer those questions right it's always a bit awkward if she's like well what about all the drugs that I took and you're like well I don't know because I didn't look it up um, also another lived experience <laughs> so just make sure that you go in well prepared and anticipate the question that the patients want. It's not rocket science, but you'd be surprised how often you forget to do that, which for me was 100% of the time. <laughs> what support can you provide them? Just obstetrics and social work stuff, I think primarily. Most patients want obstetric follow-up because they're worried that they've done something, you know, untoward and not to speak for the all patients presenting with deliberate self-poisonings, but there is a certain element of impulsivity to some of that behavior, and then you do get patients regretting their behavior and then obviously that gets compounded when 
you know, you add the guilt of an unknown pregnancy to the mix. And so generally I get social work involved as well, or if not me, then psych will. The other aspect of it is reassuring the mum by offering them some obstetric follow-up, even if it is just lip service, because you know that the paracetamol hasn't done anything. It's unlikely that they're going to just believe you in their one traumatic ED interaction and probably going to need ongoing longitudinal support. Is there any mandatory reporting that we need to do if someone comes in with a drug overdose, whether it's an unknown or a known pregnancy? Is there anything on our sort of end that we need to do? Depressingly, we have experience with this recently with a case. When I visited that particular case, we are not obliged to mandatorily report. And our requirements for mandatory reporting, rather, is based on the gestation of the child. And so if it's considered to be a fetus that could survive birth, so that cutoff is around 24 weeks, mandatory reporting is required. I'll throw it back to you, Tim, just for some take-home points from this paper. The take-home messages would be that pregnancies, expected or otherwise, form a significant sort of proportion of patients who do present to emergency for any number of conditions. And whether or not these patients present commonly in the toxicological perspective sort of raises the questions as to whether or not there should be further management strategies or other sort of ways that we treat these patients and whether or not we should be standardising how we detect pregnancy in patients presenting with suspected poisonings, what the methods of detecting pregnancy are. So whether or not it's important to do the HCG at all and what the implications are from a psychosocial perspective compared to what the actual medical implications of pregnancy and toxicology are. Suspect the unexpected. Thanks, Tim, for presenting that paper. Thank you, all of you guys, particularly Naren, promoting Kit for your feedback and sort of input as well. It was really a good opportunity for us to get down to the bottom of what that paper was about and what the motivation behind publishing that paper was. Moving on to the next sort of segment, we have Associate Professor Naren Gunja here with us today. I might just get you to take us through your little interlude, Naren, if that's okay. I thought I might talk about electric vehicles just because I've got one. Not everyone does. I'm not saying it's uncommon. You are seeing lots more of them over the last couple of years, but I was probably an early adopter, if you want to call it that. Thought maybe I'll talk about that. I put in solar panels in my house about four years ago. And then about a year after that, I put in an electric battery in my house, which basically meant that I became off-grid. So in summer months in particular, I don't really need any electricity. My electrical bills were like $5 a month or something in summer where I was running air conditioning all day, which was just coming off the solar panel. And then it would, once I got the battery, it basically meant that I could store excess energy and run anything at night, like a fan or aircon. Economics of that is a little bit up and down because To pay off your solar panels, it might take about five years. I mean, at the time, maybe five years ago, we didn't have as high electricity bills as we do now. Electricity bills are now sort of going up at the moment. There's some sort of instability in the market. There's instability in the grid. As a layperson, I'm sort of calculating that takes about five years to pay off your solar panels. It probably takes another five years to pay off a battery. Batteries are not cheap. They're about $10,000 to install and buy and have it all up and running. But I have a nice little app on my phone where I can check how the solar is working and 
you know, how much electricity I'm using, how much solar energy is being drawn and how much is going to the grid. So I, I could feed into the grid as well. And then a couple of years after all of that, I bought an electric car. At the time, there weren't really a lot of electric cars on the market other than Tesla. That was the main one. There are many more now, like Nissan Leaf and Hyundai and even BMW and Mercedes have come out with electric models. So the new Polestar is coming out soon. That's going to be amazing. So there's lots of electric cars coming out. And the main thing for Australia is we're a little bit different to some other countries is that we've got pretty vast distances to cover. So it's a lot of uh, is about range anxieties that drivers are worried that they're going to be left in the middle of the road with no charge. So the government and industry is rolling out a lot of charging stations. We've had a pretty slow uptake in Australia over the last 10 years, but I think that is going to improve now with increase in government kind of subsidies and traction and rolling out electric charging stations. So definitely encourage anybody who's interested to look at their next vehicle being an electric vehicle. Because the idea of basically putting liquid into your vehicle and burning it as a flammable substance is um, we're going to be looking at that in 50 years time and thinking, what were we doing? That's such a crazy thing to do. Much like we think of steam engines now, can you imagine shoveling coal into an engine and burning it? And that's how you would get from place to place. We think that's just a ridiculous, crazy idea now. And we are going to think that about petrol in the near future. The first car was electric, but unfortunately it had enough battery to only sort of go down the road and 100 metres and that was it, it would stop. And unfortunately battery technology took 100 years to catch up to sort of Henry Ford's original vision. So we've had to have 100 years of petrol in between, unfortunately. Very wise words, Naren. I feel like you have very niche interests. Niche is the word. I think we'll also be looking back and thinking about what we did to the environment, but uh, I think both of them are very good points. <laughs> that brings us to the end of the second part of this series on toxicology. Make sure you join us for the third and final part where we will be talking about the chemical warfare agent, sarin gas. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Desde que te vi, buscaba una así.